This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Author, cultural ecologist, and geophilosopher David Abram has been an inspirational leading voice at the intersection of ecology and philosophy for over 25 years. A close student of the traditional ecological knowledge of a diverse array of indigenous peoples, his work articulates the interconnection of humans, both with the varied sensitivities of the plants and animals upon whom we depend, as well as with the agency of the places that surround and sustain our communities. In this episode, David is joined by CIIS philosophy faculty Matt Siegel for an inspiring conversation on the wild intelligence of our bodies, the ecological depths of our imagination, and the ways in which sensory perception and wonder inform the relation between the human animal and the animate earth. This episode was recorded during an in-person and live-streamed event at First Unitarian Universalist Church and Center on May 19th, 2022. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, everyone. Hello, Dave. Great to be here uh, in person with all of you. Thanks for coming out uh, to this UU Center. Beautiful space, beautiful day uh, for hopefully a deep and interesting conversation. I've been looking forward to this for actually over two years. This was supposed to happen in the BC era before COVID. I guess we're still um, obviously dealing with that. And to begin, I thought, it would make sense to start in the present, which Mm. um, seems to me to be something like a a state of normalized emergency, um, is one way of describing it, Mm. where uh, in so many ways, the world is um, pushing people to to retreat, to escape, um, to not look at all the various ways in which an unraveling is occurring. for someone like you who has been engaged in uh, a form of philosophy that is calling us to return to our senses, um, how do you practice ecology in a time of planetary emergency like this when it's pretty clear that, that the Earth seems to be in, in a decline um, ecologically? What does it mean to be an ecologist in that, in that context for you? It hurts. Yeah. It hurts. Um, I reckon this is something we're all grappling with, everyone in this, in this fine room. Um, whether you are an ecologist or, or a thief or a banker or a prophet or a a monk, we're all, we're all confounded and massively confused and befuddled by what's coming down on every hand, sort of cascading calamities, um, glaciers melting, oceans rising, wildfires spreading. I, it was weird coming here from New Mexico. I live in northern New Mexico. Um, in the upper Rio Grande Valley, uh, in the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Um, Really beautiful terrain, uh, homeland, uh, many Pueblo peoples, the Tewa, Tiwa, and Toa-speaking peoples who have tended the earth there for so long with so much care. But it's a land also tended and stewarded by the huge aspen groves up upslope 
and ravens and the coyotes who wake us up in the middle of the night, pretty much every night, and bobcats and black bear and great ponderosa pine trees. A luscious realm that is now um, home to a huge fire, the Hermit Peak Fire, which is ever so steadily advancing toward my home terrain. So various friends back home know that they've just got to call me and let me know if it's encroaching um, a bit too close and I've got to hightail it back. Mm. Um, but I know you folks here in California are well acquainted with that sort of situation. Um, but not just such things as fires and floods and droughts and never before seen hurricane winds, but you know, now the distant thunder of war yet again, um, in the midst of a global pandemic, how, how to not become numb is for me a huge question. Um, and a question I reckon probably most of you have, have found yourself wondering. Um, and it's a puzzle for me. It's just, it's, it's, it's a big koan. The um, pinion pines around my home, uh, it's the land there is sort of polka dotted with pinion pines and juniper trees, the red earth between them setting off these, these fairly low uh, trees, um, but the pinion pines all succumbed last summer to, from the drought to this opportunistic pine bark beetle, and many, many of them died. And in the last few days, um, the last three days, uh, folks, a team of folks have been cutting down these Pinions. Um, I didn't realize they were going to be doing that. I was out uh, and about all day, got back after dark, um, and found myself, you know, I was trying to read, get some work done in the evening. I found myself really glum, really blue, um, uncommonly. And I couldn't figure out what is this ache. Um, went to sleep, tried to sleep, really fitful night. Um, when the sun came up in the morning, I was still feeling just kind of miserable in my muscles, in my body, and got up and went outside to just take a walk and stepped into the trees and realized so many of these had just been lopped, um, cut the day before, and I hadn't realized they were going to be engage in that in the neighborhood in hopes of protecting against fire, um, to remove some of the fuel, as it were, from the fire. I stepped out among all these trees and just sat on the ground and started weeping and realized, ah, my body had just been picking up the dramatic, sudden, absence of all these allies and friends and neighbors of my organism that suddenly were just not there or were lying dismembered on the ground. Ah, <sighs> weeping. So it seems to me that the parched earth is dry, dry soil, at least where I live. The parched soil needs the water of our tears. To know that we actually give a damn, that we're actually here. And so I've got no good answer to that question in the midst of so many compounding catastrophes. How do we not become numb except something of keep listening close in to your muscled flesh. And when you feel joy, 
really express it and let it roll through you. Dance, sing, sing and dance. <laughs> um, or write a poem, or two, or three. And when you feel an ache, or gloom, or sadness, let it roll through you also. Express it. Let the tears, let the tears fall. Because hmm. that feeds the earth. And it feeds the bond and the rapport between your body and the earth. And it keeps stuff from getting stuck in here, which is what fosters that kind of numbness that we all, I think, are grappling with as things accelerate. Yeah, yeah. So you've been described and describe yourself, I believe, as an animist. Mm. And um, I'd love to deepen into the meaning of this, of this term and how it relates to uh, coming to our senses, as it were, and re-inhabiting our bodies and being in the places being in the places that we find ourselves, uh, rather than always rushing to be elsewhere in search of something mm. um, that we imagine will be better than where we are. Uh, as an animist, um, <clears throat> you know, you're talking about the, the grief you feel for the trees that were lost, mm. um, and the, the, the tears that can be shed on behalf of all the various forms of, of life, organisms that are uh, being pushed off their habitats and driven to extinction and so on. But what does animism mean for you? I, I assume it also implies that uh, the mountains and the rivers and even the very air <laughs> that we breathe has a kind of animacy. Mm. Yeah. And uh, talk, to us, talk to us about how you came to that realization and, and what its relevance might be for uh, this... Um, ecological unraveling that we find ourselves in. Wow. Well, if I might pull back a moment to make a link with the, with the prior question. Mm -hmm. um, huh. Well, just to say, it seems to me that as things are unraveling further, and as there is this steadily accelerating loss of other species, as you speak, um, of other shapes of sentience and sensitivity, winking out of the world as we sit here together uh, talking, um, and as these onrushing weirdnesses, like this fire spreading toward my home in New Mexico, as these kinds of events intensify, um, I, I'd like to offer one clue that's been becoming more and more real to me, which is that the most um, efficacious response is um, to become more and more identified with your body. To become body. Uh, identifying with your body not as, um, you know, just the house or temple of your soul, but as the very shape of your sentience, as the very shape and texture of your soul. To identify with your creaturely flesh, your animal organism, because this body is our, it's, it's like the most exquisitely tuned instrument for sussing out any aspect of the real. It's far more tuned and attuned than any technology we, we will ever devise, seems to me. Um, to become more and more identified with your body is to become more and more of your place. Hmm. It's to wake up your animal senses and open the pores of your skin, your ears tuning into all these other voices that surround, um, your eyes becoming much more aware of the nuances and the subtleties in 
the scape around you, the soundscape for the ears, the colorscape for the eyes, um, but your skin, in fact, your whole synesthetic organism just starts blending with the terrain all around so that um, you're not just noticing and attuning to and being tuned by these nuances in the surrounding world, but you can avail yourself of them. You know where to find um, particular pools or spaces of calm. You can even make yourself virtually invisible to onrushing uh, wildnesses and wildfires as they move through. There are waves always in the land itself, um, in your rapport with the other animals thereabout, wherever you live. That, at least, it seems to me, is, is a key, key strategy for meeting the outrageous weirdness that is now upon us. Hmm. Um, so your question was, you know, about animism. Um, for, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the importance of embodiment mm. is, is so crucial for um, Western cultures who are used to identifying with some invisible point somewhere behind their eyes. And uh, the body is this baggage we have to carry around with us, particularly as we age. And, um, but when you say identify with the body, um, I think you mean something different than the way that a 19th century materialist would refer to bodies, right? Because there's this animacy mm. to the body as you're referring to it. So unpack that for us. How is animism different from materialism when clearly you're trying to call our attention to the materiality of our reality? Right? I, I am indeed. Um, and so in a sense, one could say... I suppose that I'm a materialist, but I'm a matter realist, really. Yeah. Um, I, I, I try and keep faith with the materiality of things. Um, and I feel like our culture is in ever so many ways not material enough. No, it doesn't pay attention to the materials from which our houses are built, our furniture in our homes, the clothes mm. even that we wear. Material or matter realist in the sense of, um, yeah, keeping faith with a sense of matter as something alive through and through. Matter not as something inert, inanimate, determinate, mechanical, or following mechanical, purely mechanical laws of causation, but uh, matter as, as mater as matrix, as the womb of all things. Um, that's the kind of matter realist, I suppose, mm -hmm. that I am. To speak of the body um, from such a perspective is to speak of this uh, outrageously gifted um, creature that we are, that is clearly um, has its density and weight uh, so it's, a, it's, it's by being a body among other bodies, it's my body that gives me access to all the other animals and to the plants as well, because there is something in me of that rooted verticality. In fact, once us four-legged creatures started standing up and balancing on our hind legs, suddenly all the trees became our our closest allies in verticality. We have, by virtue of being body, we have a way of leaning into and sussing out something of the experience of any other body we encounter, mm -hmm. whether that body be an earthworm or a ponderosa pine or um, a bobcat um, or a mountain or even a whole forest, even a building, um, a computer, mm. because um, it's all, it's all alive. It's all uh, uh, 
it's never entirely, utterly inanimate, inert. There is nothing, at least to my creaturely experience, that is utterly inanimate. We speak of how things catch our eye or call our attention or grab our focus. Even a stone, you know, it snags my awareness. Ooh, that was a cool stone as I'm cycling past and I turn my bike around, go back and pick it up. Because there's something about that stone that caught my eye. It caught my eye. It grabs my focus. It, things actively engage our organism, our body. And we respond to that engagement by maybe reaching out and touching that thing, to which the thing then itself responds by revealing something more of itself. This stone or this boulder shows me something of its grainy texture, um, to which I then respond by engaging further. And so perception is this sort of ongoing interchange or dialogue. It's a living reciprocity between my sensate body and the sensuous beings that I encounter. Um, it seems to me that from our body's perspective, we know of no utterly inanimate, inert substance that simply to perceive something is already to enter into a living exchange, a reciprocal encounter with that being. Um, and so animism, since you asked, is just a way of speaking in accordance with our sensate organism. It's a way of speaking in alignment with our body. It's a way of bringing our abstract intellect back into a kind of accord or alignment with its animal flesh. Yeah. So the, the term itself, which you've re repurposed in this positive sense, mm. as I'm sure you know, comes out of um, 19th century anthropology, where Europeans and Americans were describing indigenous cultures and their worldview as, well, they're animist. Um, and it seems that uh, all human beings for the first, what, five, six, seven, eight years of our lives are basically very much aware of what you're describing. And then in the modern West, for the last several hundred years, it, it gets beaten out of us. Uh, and we, we learn the alphabet. Yes. We're going to talk about that, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, we, we develop abstract thought and we begin to not notice all of the agencies that are scintillating on the edges of our rational, conscious yes. awareness. Um, yes. We could talk about how that happened and I, I want to go into that. Usually we say, well, the scientific revolution and this mechanistic worldview uh, led to the disenchantment of nature and so on. But I think there's also, there was a political project here, which is to develop human freedom. And human beings as individuals uh, recognize their own freedom in contrast to the inert mechanism of nature. It seems to me that as soon as we step back into an animated universe, that's gonna change how we think about our own freedom, right? Hugely. What does that look like? Uh, what's in store for us if we do step into a more ecological worldview? What, what sort of, um, what is the politics that comes along with this ecology? I know that's a hard question, but it seems to me that it's very much alive Wow, that's right a good now. question. Um, well, I think I've already uh, gestured a bit toward yeah. the matter of place. Uh -huh. Place and the politics of wonder. Mm. That's, that is going local, it seems to me, is deeply key here. Mm. Um, to, to notice that 
not just oneself, but the entirety of one's world has, is filled with agency, animacy, that things uh, live in a gazillion different ways. I mean, I got to say that first, that animism, which, you know, one could say the simple intuition that everything is alive, um, or that everything has its own interior animation, its own pulse, its own rhythm, its own way in the world, that each thing has agency and ability to affect the space around it and the other beings, and even to affect us. Um, what this does, first and foremost, is open the possibility of relation and reciprocity with every part of the surrounding field. And so the world immediately around you becomes really fascinating and um, like inexhaustibly so because this uh, sense that everything is animate, that everything moves, is not, it's not a way into oneness. It's not a way into, oh, so it's all alive, so it's all one. No, no, it's actually a way into radical multiplicity because it's as if the bifurcation of the world into animate and inanimate enables us to hide not from the oneness of things, it enables us to hide from from the irreducible pluralism of the world. As soon as it's all alive, then I get to step up toward a slab of granite and say, how are you living? What is your way in the world? And how are you different? How is your way different from that of this, this sandstone boulder nearby? And inquire. And, um, that is, each thing lives in its own way, in its own style. But yeah, the immediate local world becomes a kind of universe. It becomes inexhaustibly strange in its yeah. uh, ways and possibilities. Even the lichen spreading on this boulder. Whoa, what's this all about? Who are you? And why are this sort of crinkly red lichen how are you different from this yellow one over here, which is not nearly so crinkly? Um, what's going on there? Um, so, yeah, becoming local, uh, opening one's sense of a kind of inexhaustible wonder at the weirdness of the real. Mm. And, um, and your kind of absolute freedom that you were speaking of, that we've celebrated for a while, it becomes a, a bit less absolute. You realize that you are profoundly dependent for your very breath upon all these other powers and beings and agencies around you, like all the plants who are breathing out the oxygen that we creatures take in and inhale and metabolize within our, our chest, circulate it through our limbs and then alchemize it, transform it, and breathe out air infused now with the very ingredient that all these plants need to take in for their photosynthetic metabolism. So what we animals breathe out, all the plants are breathing in. And what the plants breathe out, all us animals are breathing. I mean, the world begins to become exquisitely marvelous mm -hmm. to the animistic sensibility. Yeah, yeah. I like that uh, for you to be in place and to establish a relationship to your local uh, environment mm. actually entails um, uh, being in a relationship to a multiplicity of different beings. Because usually, Politically, when we think of localism, it's, well, it'll be a more homogenous culture and less mm -hmm. exposure to different kinds of people and so on. But this is a uh, pluralistic localism, animistic localism, let's call it, where you inhabit a world that is far more populous than you even 
realized. Mm. Um, Indeed. And it's not, I, I don't mean to be saying only tuned to your locale, but first and foremost yeah. uh, to this locale. And it does mean, you know, walking up to those straight lines and right angles that you see on the map and, you know, peering under them. What's actually here? Because uh, the land doesn't have those straight, straight lines and right angles between New Mexico and Arizona or Canada and the United States. What are the actual contours in the land itself? The real boundaries of the watershed where everybody on this side of that mountain ridge shares the same water, not just us two-leggeds, but all the other creatures that inhabit the land here or migrate through when they're here. Um, and can we begin to develop our politics and our economies in a way in service to the needs of the local earth? Mm -hmm. And... Um, honoring not these straight-lined artificial boundaries mm. on the map, but actually recognizing what this terrain and its actual contours really are. Who are my real neighbors here? Human and more than human. Um, but each place in this sense is not just a world unto itself because it connects at those bounds mm -hmm. with the, all these other places that surround it. Um, so it's as if one begins to perhaps sense Earth itself, this immense spherical metabolism in which our individual physiologies are, are embedded, but Earth itself as alive, breathing, a physiology, yes, but um, but each place, each bioregion, each locale is like an organ of that wider flesh. Yeah, it's as if this body, this two-legged, two-armed form, is our smaller body, and the earth is my larger flesh. Um, as flesh, it, it, it has different organs, just like my physiology does. Um, the rainforest, even the temperate rainforest up north of here, the high desert where I live, each place, the Hudson River estuary where I grew up in New York, um, each bioregion, its own rhythm and style of life, its own state of mind, really. It's as if each place is its own organ within the larger flesh of the breathing earth. I can't help but think that our economics and our politics, sooner or later, if we, if we are to have anything of a future, will begin to align and ally itself with the deep needs of uh, the breathing earth itself. Yeah. It strikes me that a human species that became more attuned to the surrounding environment through the senses might have an easier time communi communicating across linguistic barriers uh, that in some sense we're inhabiting our bodies, which are the same across cultures, and our sensory apparatus, which are the same across cultures, might actually uh, afford us some way forward politically, geopolitically, as much as ecologically. Mm. I would think so. It does seem to me that we don't have a hint of a hoot, of a chance of healing our various social injustices and massive uh, interhuman violence, these internecine wars that we keep sparking up between one another um, without a sort of collective turn uh, away from just gazing at each other and battling out over particular words, particular things we disagree with, particular beliefs, turning together toward the land and asking the ground, what do you need of us here? What does this place ask of us? And that very gesture 
of turning away from just being focused just on ourselves toward the more than human context and asking of it. That very gesture, it seems to me, begins to draw the human uh, population into a new alignment with itself, eases a lot of the brittleness of our internecine, interhuman um, um, discord. Mm. Yeah. So you've studied with various indigenous peoples in the Western United States. You've studied uh, in Asia uh, with traditional magical practitioners and healers. And um, you also have drawn on, um, and I think personally connect with some, uh, with the biblical traditions in some way. And um, given all of this, um, what future do you see for, for religion um, and or spirituality, and we can talk maybe about what the difference between the two are, but um, what is the future of religion and spirituality hmm. in an ecological context if we do attune to our senses again and rediscover inanimate earth? What hmm. sort of religion would be flowering or religions in such a context, do you think? Huh, interesting question. Um, is there a place for religion in that context or would you describe it as something else entirely? Well, I would say given the propensity of, of religious forms to, um, to nudge our attention out beyond the uh, sensuous mm -hmm. into relation with uh, a transcendent source that is radically outside or beyond or beneath or behind. Um, it seems to me perhaps that, um, that the, the, the move, the, the deeply ecological uh, uh, move that I'm trying to uh, tickle my uh, compatriots into is a move toward a kind of radical imminence, a deeply imminent, radically imminent sense of the sacred that, that in a sense is very contrary to what we have associated with religion for far so long. I, 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 don't, I don't know that the um, indigenous brothers and sisters I lived among in Indonesia, or even the Pueblo uh, allies where I live back home. Um, I don't know that their belief system or worldview or cosmovision is, is rightly called a religion mm -hmm. because it's so palpably in relation to the actual uh, terrain around them and the elements that compose that terrain, the animals, the plants, but even the winds and the weather powers, um, the particular way that the sunlight is held in the air in that part of this continent. Um, imminence. So perhaps what we're speaking of is a, a relation to the holy that preceded all of the world religions and that will outlast all of the large formal religions because it's always been there underneath these formal religious structures, secretly nourishing them from below. It's, it's the body's faith, a faith not in a radical transcendent source, but a faith in the return of light every dawn, in the um, nourishment of the air, in uh, the gestation of seeds, and uh, a faith in mountains and rivers. 
Is that a faith? I think so. It's the body's faith. Mm. Mm. Yeah. When you spread agency throughout the world and mm. uh, cease from keeping it contained just within the human, it seems to me that one way of describing what that entails is that it's like there are little transcendences populating mm. the entire earth in the sense that each agent is a a source of, of creative surprise that's yeah profoundly relational but not determined by those relationships. I mean, agency is, um, there's, there's a creative will there that's present in all the creatures that compose the world. And mm. so I guess rather than totally eliminate transcendence and just have the imminence. It's like, we can see how, well, the transcendence pops up everywhere. And exactly. You, you know, that's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's that, um, you can write about it cause I won't be able to, but it's just transcendence well you wherever you turn. Yeah. There is transcendence. Yeah. Um, that is just how I see it. Wonderful. And that is just how I see it. Yeah. So, um, let's talk a bit about your first book. Spell of the Sensuous. Um, I was rereading some of it in the last several days, and um, first of all, it's 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 astounding that someone of such um, erudition and poetic uh, capacity uh, could, um, at the same time, uh, raise such a profound critique of the effects of the alphabet on consciousness. Huh. Um, and I think you're not, this, uh, the irony of that is not lost on you by any means. Um, but I wonder how, how do you reconcile with the sense in which you yourself are so possessed by this alphabetic mode, right? Huh. As, as I assume we all are as, as speaking, writing, uh, English speaking, um, human beings, maybe they're, you're multilingual here, but you still have an alphabet. Um, hmm. We have this way of using this very tool to turn back upon the tool and ask, should I really be using this tool? <laughs> or how is this tool blinding me from the animate earth? Um, right. So talk to us about how you, you came to this, this insight, this relationship to the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, huh, uh, it's a good question. I mean, Gadzooks. So for those of you who know this particular book of mine, The Spell of the Century, it's, 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 it's by no means the whole book, but it is one of the arguments threaded throughout the work, uh, is the, the very strange influence of formal writing systems upon our senses and looking even how different writing systems affect our senses in different ways, but how the alphabet or phonetic writing profoundly alters our sensory relation to the surrounding sensuous earth. And also how writing and the alphabet alters our experience of language and linguistic meaning. Because when we speak of indigenous, traditionally animistic, or traditionally, yeah, peoples of place, um, we are by and large speaking of traditionally oral cultures, cultures that, that developed and flourished often century after century, after, millennia after millennia, without or in the absence of any formal system of writing that is coupled to their spoken language. And so it's an interesting question. Uh, this difference, but Gadzooks, Matt, I gotta say, um, um, it's been the most um, common misunderstanding um, um, that we meet out there in the world, that I've met out there in the world, of my work is that like, oh my God, Abrams says the alphabet is the cause of all of our problems, that writing, you know, is bad. And yet, look, the guy's written a whole book, um, and he's written it with a kind of love of language, and it's very sort of a literary uh, text. We seem to have caught him in a performative contradiction. Um, um, and they just 
we're, have not been reading carefully enough. I love the written word. I am not saying that writing is bad. I'm certainly not saying that the alphabet is evil. I am saying, rather, that writing is magic and that the alphabet is a very powerful form of magic, uh, a very concentrated form of animism. I mean, we come down in the morning, uh, open up a newspaper, and focus our eyes on these ostensibly inanimate bits of ink on the page, and suddenly we hear voices, and we see visions of events happening on the other side of the world. Um, this is animism, folks. This is magic. I mean, it's not that different from uh, an indigenous Pueblo woman stepping out from the Pueblo um, into the woods and coming upon, yes, like a boulder I was speaking of earlier with all of these crinkly lichens spreading on it. And uh, she focuses her eyes on a patch of lichen and suddenly hears the rock speaking to her. Or a man walking uh, under a tree and sees a spider uh, slowly um, weaving its web between two branches of that tree. Or maybe his face snags on the spider web and then he steps back and looks for that spider. I'm sure this has happened to each of us at some point or other. And when you catch sight of that spider, it's like, ooh, there she is. And you focus in and suddenly, you hear the spider speaking to you, or at least many of my allies in the traditionally oral indigenous world hear themselves addressed by such diminutive beings, as well as by very large beings like wolf or bear, but sometimes even spider. Well, we do the very same thing with our scratches and scripts. We focus our eyes on those bits of ink, and we hear voices, and we see visions. This is an intensely concentrated form of animism, but it is animism nonetheless, as outrageous as a talking stone or a speaking spider. And so it's just that this very concentrated form of magic effectively eclipses all of the other modalities of participation in which we used to engage not just with spiders and animal tracks and bent branches and cloud shapes, but I mean with basically everything in the world that we stepped into relation with could sometimes address us and speak to us. Now we have, with the written word, stepped into a richly and almost exclusively human conversation with our own human tracks leading across the white expanse of the page. So it's, it's a big shift. It's a huge change. If you want to wonder about the origin of our sense of a private interior that we each carry around this inner world within us, I think you'll find that origin point right there as we step into formalized writing, and in particular, to the phonetic alphabet. Um, but I'm not saying the alphabet is bad. I'm saying the alphabet is magic. And if we don't recognize it as such, then you tend to fall under its spell, mm. which is the spell of spelling. <laughs> um, really. It's like, wow, it's written, so it must be true. You all know that experience. Especially on the internet. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So, um, so, wow, if you do recognize it as a magic, a very powerful magic, then you can wield it responsibly and place also the written word back in service to the whole more than human field of voices. Like a writer like Mary Oliver does, or Wendell Berry, or Henry David Thoreau, or Gary Snyder, your great Californian cat, and, and so many 
other luminous women mm-hmm. and men. Mm-hmm. Terry Tempest. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I've got a question for you. Oh. Uh, I actually, when CII asked, asked if I would um, if I would come and do something with you guys, I said, sure, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we don't want you to give a talk. We'd like you to be in conversation. We'll come up with someone. I said, well, no, if you're having me out there, um, it's got to be Matt Siegel. Um, we'd not met until now. Uh, we'd not even corresponded uh, until after they, uh, CIS had said yes. But um, I'm sure many of you know, but Matt is a powerful uh, philosopher in his own right. Um, and um, I find much of the work you've been doing really compelling and, um, and, and, and fascinating to me. So you've been asking me these questions about animism, and um, it has not, you know, uh, escaped my notice that much of your writing engages uh, something that folks today call panpsychism. Um, are these very different, or are they two ways of speaking the same enigmatic wonder? I think they overlap profoundly. They could be synonyms, but panpsychists tend to want to get into arguments with each other about what it means, whereas animists seem perfectly fine to just zip it (laughs) and experience what's going on out there. I see. Um, so in other words, panpsychism is like this, this philosophical category um, that is, I think of it as an alternative to the other um, major games in town in terms of metaphysics, the ultimate nature of reality. Hmm. I see. Materialism, though I mean in the sort of 19th century reductionistic sense, idealism, dualism, hmm. and then panpsychism. There's probably other ways you can you know, dice it up, but those seem to me to be the four major options. And panpsychism or animism, I think, um, avoids the excesses of, of the others. Um, right. Materialism's too deflationary. Idealism, too inflationary. Right. Makes mind everything, and yes. it's all one. Yes. Right? And dualism's kind of incoherent. So panpsychism would be the view that, yeah, mind is everywhere. There's a soul of the world. Mm. There's a, a a soul in everything, mm. in each thing. Mm. And um, we, you know, you emphasize embodiment. Mm. Um, I tend to to think of uh, bodies as uh, expressions of soul. Ah, yeah. I, there's a in your book, uh, Spell of the Sensuous. You you talk about the Hopi language and how they have these two different senses of reality as manifested and manifesting. Manifesting, manifesting yes. And soul for me is the manifesting, ah. right? Um, and manifested would be sort of um, when when the soul expression has become arrested in, in that instance, okay, then it's manifested and we think of it as no longer mm. as living as it was in the manifesting right. phase. Got it. Um, yeah, body for me... I suppose is combines both of those. Sure, it's uh, uh, clearly manifest in many of its aspects, and yet so much of it is hidden, even from me. And it's up to things going on all the time, not just in my gut, but in every little, um, you know, digit and knuckle of my digits. Um, Things are preparing, are brewing, unfurling themselves, um, and often taking me by by surprise. But yes, so I, it it would be hard for me to say that each thing has a soul. It's more that each thing is a soul. soul, That the body is the very texture and um, and uh, flesh or shape of this mystery we call soul or mind but this is words we're very close and yeah. yet it's very you know it's 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 slightly divergent 
ways of speaking. It's true. Those who would hold or feel comfortable with a sense of animism, many of whom would not even necessarily know the term animism, yeah. but they are, um, it's not a logical, um, it's not a logical position. It's an experiential um, stance in relation to the rest of the real. And it, uh, it, it comes into being or it's discussed not uh, because it solves or, um, mm-hmm. yeah, solves any sort of philosophical, logical um, incoherence, but because of a kind of ethical imperative to step into full-bodied relation with the palpable actuality of the world right. that surrounds us. Um, how is it that we have become so deaf to all these other voices that don't speak in words, so blind to anything that's not human or of human invention um, that we can so casually bring about by our lifestyles the extinction of all of these other shapes of sensitivity and sentience. How can we undo that? Is there, is there a way of just rapidly shifting that blindness, that deafness? And I think that's, um, that's what certainly motivates my uh, wish to speak in these ways. Yeah. <clears throat> We have a few minutes left here. Um, I, I will say, I think I am both an animist and a panpsychist mm. um, because they're different in the sense that you were hinting at. Animism is more um, experiential. Mm. There are an increasing number of analytic philosophers of mind who adopt panpsychism, um, but as a as a logical exercise. Um, mm. And when you actually, and I've asked some of them, you know, well how do you feel about, about the mountain over there? Or how do you feel about, mm. uh, you know, the water that comes out of the faucet or the water in the river? Um, do, you, do you feel the presence of another mm. being or beings, um, you know, sharing a place with you when, when you encounter them? And the answer is usually no. There's no experiential uh, grasp of what, oh. if panpsychism were true, what it would mean for us as wow. embodied creatures, you know? How very so, strange. How very strange. It's a little frustrating. It is. Um, to it be is. an academic having these conversations and, you know, panpsychism sounds so cool, but if it just stays in the classroom and in the books, it's like, oh, yeah. How is it helping the world? Another slight difference is that animism is, it's a more, perhaps, perhaps a more mythopoetic way of mm. addressing this sense of. Uh, being immersed in sentience, but um, although Pan and Psyche are also hmm. mythic beings, oh. right? So. Yeah, very mythic <laughs> beings. Just like animism comes from anima, anima, yeah. the Latin word for the soul, which originally means a breath or a gust of wind. It actually comes from the older Greek term animos, which means wind. And so this sense of everything in motion very sensuously is also just a noticing that we live immersed in this unseen, invisible medium of air that sometimes, well, that sets everything in motion when the wind is moving. And yet it's also has these cool pools of calm uh, on certain days that the air itself is aware. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You've given uh, some talks and I think written a bit about what you call the, the common wealth of breath and developed this analogy between mind and air and that in some ways we are inside of a kind of atmospheric consciousness. Yes. Um, very panpsychist, very animist. I love it. Mm. Um, in the context of two, I'll call them natural disasters. Some people think COVID was a lab leak, but even if it was, they were only studying it because of the risk of spillover events due to habitat loss. And so ultimately, what's the difference? Uh, climate change, 
uh, COVID hmm. affecting the air we breathe and, and um, the atmosphere of this planet, what does that tell us about consciousness? What does that tell us about the sort of intention that we would need to, to cultivate and develop to respond to, hmm. to the climate crisis? Uh, hmm. If we think about it in an animistic way, not just as, oh, there's too much CO2 in the air out there, we're actually breathing that in from moment to moment too. So how does, how does the animistic view of climate change you know, and or the pandemic hmm. change our situation? Or what is it? Well, I think both of these are instances where the palpable thickness, the meaning-filled richness of the invisible medium that connects you and I up here and all of us sharing breath within this room with one another. Um, uh, yet we live in a civilization, um, a rather goofy civilization, that thinks that since we can't see it, there's nothing of much consequence here between us. We don't speak of the air between us, we speak of the space between us, or the space between you and a nearby tree. It's empty, empty space, and so it's just, it's a void, right? And so it's a perfect place to toss everything we wish to avoid all the toxic byproducts of our industries, uh, of our fossil-fueled automobiles, and giant tankers out at sea lugging thick tar sands crude to be processed in foreign ports. Whatever, you know, spills and spews out of those smokestacks and farts out of the the exhaust pipes of our trucks and automobiles and dissolves into the unseen air. We think, whoa, look, the smoke, it's just dissolving into the air. And we think out of sight, out of mind. We don't need to worry about it. It's gone. But for our indigenous oral ancestors, that which dissipates as smoke and dissolves into the invisible atmosphere is by that very gesture entering into the mind, wind mind of the world from which we all drink steadily. The animistic sense of mind is not of that I have a little mind inside me and you have a little mind inside you and then we get to argue about whether that squirrel has a little mind inside its head, but rather is a recognition that, that there is something interior about the mind. But it's not because it's inside us, it's because we are inside it bodily immersed along with all these other bodies of people and great blue herons and spiders and oak trees. We are immersed in a mind that is not ours, but is rather the Earth's. That mind moves and blows through all of us and each being partakes and participates in this vast sentience. I don't know, Matt, what is climate change if not the simple consequence of forgetting the sacredness of the invisible air or atmosphere and beginning to treat it as just empty space or rather to treat it as a convenient dump site for all of our toxins. Um, in doing that, it's like we were making burnt offerings back to some slumbering power, some god, some wild agency that stirred from its slumber would begin to bite us. And we are living at that moment. And the bite is coming hard. Dave, it's been a delight to share air with you and all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.